think you're really going to like this episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and our guest today is James Dukas, who knows a heck of a lot about Calabracoa. As well he should, because he's grown hundreds of thousands of them during his career as a professional grower, and now helps growers in the eastern regions of North America produce the best crops possible in his role with Ball Floor Plant and Selecta One. In this episode, James takes us from start to finish with his popular annual plant, covering propagation and root health, pitfalls to avoid, planning ahead for pH issues, avoiding aphids, taking your crop across the goal line to sell quickly at retail, and much, much more. We talk about a few of his favorite varieties and also dig deep into the nuances of growing balanced multi-species baskets and combos that include Calabracoa. From start to finish to sold, you're in for a Calabracoa lesson with James. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four points lining up to support one key topic. More and more green industry businesses are actively participating in social media, and that is great to see. As social media evolves and matures, it's clearly becoming a critical tool in the marketing toolbox of any company. But so many STEM listeners are greenhouse growers and wholesale producers that I thought it would be good to focus on the differences between business-to-business social media strategies and business-to-consumer approaches in this episode's Connect Four. They are really very different. I found a blog from Ben Green with social media marketing company Octopus that really drilled the differences down to three key areas. To round out Connect Four, the final chip will be a key piece of advice for B2B social media. First, content. Green explains content is no longer just written words. It it includes visual, audio, and interactive content. The goal of content marketing is not to be overtly promotional, but to provide value to the reader. Remember, very few customers actually care about you or your company. They want to know what's in it for them. After providing value with your content, you will then be seen as a thought leader, and your company will then be at the top of their mind when it comes to making a purchase decision. So for B2C, the focus is on visual content. Green says video is king when it comes to business to consumer. It's important to think about how shareable and engaging a post will be when creating a video. And content has evolved. Now, the messaging within a social post itself is a type of content marketing. And it's important that this type of content is well thought out, specifically in terms of who the target audience really is. As such, social content for B2C marketers should be more casual, including humor and even risque banter which also works as well. But for B2B marketers, like many of us, there's a much greater range of tactics to use when it comes to content marketing, a much greater range beyond just visual and video. B2B marketers generally focus on more professional types of content, including white papers and eBooks, case studies, webinars, and infographics. So try these and more and determine what works best. Next, channels. Green explains that today we're seeing a proliferation of social channels and niche social networks focusing on one form of communication or media. For example, Pinterest and Instagram focused on visuals while SoundCloud is for audio and YouTube is for video. So which are the best for B2C and B2B? Let's start with B2C. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube are the dominant four, led clearly by Facebook. Facebook for business-to-consumer marketing is an amazing tool for community engagement, customer support, and promotion. And because video is so powerful, creating fun YouTube videos is something all B2C marketers should focus on. While production value is important, there certainly is value to a less polished video. It actually gives a brand more personality. But moving to B2B, Green feels that there are three social networks, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook that B2B marketers need to focus on. And LinkedIn stands out as the absolute most important. Discussion groups in particular should be leveraged as much as possible for not only engagement, but content distribution. So make sure that when you're distributing content through groups, you're not coming off as too promotional. Get on LinkedIn, start sharing content. Third, goals and metrics. This post has outlined the many differences between B2C and B2B social media marketing, but the absolute goal is lead generation, especially for B2B marketers like many of you. For B2C, this looks like community engagement and awareness, 
Going viral is the epitome of a B2C social media strategy, and creating viral content is a product of focusing on increasing awareness through social media. But looking at B2B, as stated, the number one goal for B2B marketers with regards to their content is lead generation. And this can be measured by engagement, web traffic, capturing emails and contact data, many ways. The author explains that one barrier to B2B social marketing is a perception in the B2B community that there is no way to measure the real effectiveness of social media marketing. But this is becoming less and less true as social media proves to be a way to build and convert leads. So I'd suggest working with a marketing firm or tasking one of your clever, clever individuals in your business with the goal of turning social into leads and then developing a follow-up plan. This won't be easy, but when integrated into your overall marketing plan, it will be effective. The final chip in our game of social media connect for is more of a tip. Feature a real person in your B2B social campaigns. The last thing you want to appear is to be robotic or faceless. Use a first-person voice when posting content, and post from a person, not from your brand. This is especially critical when posting from or about your wonderful customer service. And initiate any online engagement with your customers from a person, again, not from the brand. And there you go. I hope you learned some new strategies for your social media plan and feel a bit more confident that it will achieve the results you want. Now, let's head into the virtual greenhouse of STEM and talk Calabracoa production. It's my pleasure to welcome James Dukas to STEM. James is a pretty young guy, but his credentials are impressive. He's currently the ball floor plant and select a one Northeast and Great Lakes Territory Manager, working daily with growers of all sizes to select and grow the best of the best crops. Prior to joining the ball floor plant team, he was lead grower at Tidal Creek Growers in Davidsonville, Maryland, and also a propagation manager at Homestead Growers. James received his Bachelor of Science from University of Maryland in plant science, focused on horticulture and crop rotation, and interned with Homestead Growers in Davidsonville, Maryland, and at the USDA Citrus Quarantine ARS facility in Beltsville, Maryland. And as James will tell you, he has grown a ton of Calabracoa, learning from industry experts, experienced growers, and plenty of his own hands-on experience. James, welcome to STEM. Thank you for having me, Bill. So, one of our past guests actually suggested that I talk to you about Calabracoa. Um, we were talking about deep dives into specific crops and, and sort of a direction I wanted to take STEM um, really going uh, going crop by crop. and. He said that you are the man when it comes to the ins and outs of Calabracoa production uh, from from all sorts of different angles, um, from your from your experience as a grower and um, kind of now the way that you uh, you spend a lot of time focused on the products. So I really can't wait to dig into this annual crop. But just to get us started, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your history growing Calabracoa and you know maybe a little bit about your experience as a professional grower? Sure, Bill. Uh, I've been in the industry 10 years after getting my Bachelor of Science from the University of Maryland. Uh, recently, as two years ago, I was lead grower at Tidal Creek Growers in Maryland. Um, Tidal Creek was a wholesale grower that services IGCs, mainly in the Maryland, Virginia, D.C., Delaware area, and also contract grows for other growers. Uh, I was responsible for all the propagated material, liners and plugs for both farms and facilities, and had a uh, team of four section growers, uh, finishing material at my site. Um, we propagated north of 300,000 uh, 300, Calabacoa liners every year. And that was for, you know, finished baskets, uh, combos, different, you know, mixes, uh, pretty much every pot size. Um, but not just Calabacoa, we also did uh, uh, bedding plants. I mean, you're talking perennials, annuals, uh, holiday pot crops, uh, pretty much everything but cyclamen is what we uh, grew. <laughs> wow. Um, 300,000 plus Calabracoa liners, I think, uh, each year. I think that definitely positions you as someone who knows a lot about how to grow this crop. And I'm sure that you've seen uh, the good and bad of production and will be able to shed a lot of light on um, what, it, what it takes to produce an excellent crop and, and certainly some pitfalls to avoid. So I appreciate you helping set the stage um, with background. So I know that Calabracoa is definitely on a list of top annuals and as a retail product, 
you know, I've heard it said that it's one of the highest sell-through items. Um, it certainly has, it's in, in every single garden center across all of North America. So what can you tell me about Calabricoa as a retail and consumer favorite? And, you know, why do you think it's achieved this level of popularity so quickly in its life cycle? I think the main point would be the longevity of the plant in the consumer's hands. Uh, once they can plant it in spring and pretty much go all the way to maybe a harder frost or a late frost in fall. And, and consumers more and more gardeners want that all season performance from their plants. Uh, it also helps that uh, Calabricola, you know, comes in some great vibrant straight colors, but also a variety of novelties uh, and bicolors and different forms of those bicolors. So I think that's really why it's achieved this popularity so quickly. It's, it's a good show that lasts for a long time. Absolutely. And I think you can you see it in all sorts of different configurations at retail. You see it in, you know, as combo components. You see it as straight um, sort of showcase uh, uh, patio pots um, for, for gardeners to put on patios, on decks, all throughout the gardens. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And as we are recording this podcast in real time, spring is breaking all across North America. I know that any garden center you walk into is going to have Calabricoa baskets lining the aisles, all up in, in the in the baskets, up in the rafters. So do you see the growth of this crop continuing, or do you think it's going to plateau? Why should, why should growers still be excited about Calabricoa? I know that um, certainly ball floor plant and select to continue to, to breed in this class and continue to bring tons of new products to market. So why should growers um, still be excited about Calabricoa? Um, well, I think at the end of the day, growers should still be excited about Calabricoa because ultimately their consumers and their customers are still excited about Calabricoa. Um, while we all enjoy plants to varying degrees uh, and have our own little nuances and like to nerd out on certain things, we're still in the business to make money at the end of the day. And uh, as the consumers demanding, the gardeners demanding Calabricoa, we should be exciting, uh, excited to deliver that crop to them. And um, well, you know, you, accept, you, you mentioned the fact that it's, it continues to grow uh, or the Calvacoa market continues to grow. You know, it maybe not will plateau, but I think the rise of that increase might start to level off uh, just because it has been so dramatic. Uh, that's a really good point that as, you know, no matter how excited we, we can get in the industry about a crop, it's really that excitement that consumers are showing and I actually just read an article uh, this past week calling out Calabricoa as a great crop to use in, in you know, at a, in a home setting because it is fairly low maintenance. It has that longevity that you mentioned. And, you know, still to this day, uh, garden writers are calling out Calabricoa as an exciting crop. So definitely pulls all the way back through the chain, something we should all be excited about. So yeah, well, let, well, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to mention while, you know, I, I'm not a grower anymore. There, there are two times that a greenhouse is most beautiful, you know, when it's full of product and then, of course, when it's empty. And uh, if we can fill up the greenhouse with products that our, our gardeners want to purchase and then it becomes empty quicker, um, I call that a win for all everyone involved. Absolutely. And Calabricoa is a product that sells through um, very quickly at retail. It's one that you can uh pretty much guaranteed to, to ship out of your greenhouse and, and, and it's going to look good and it's going to sell quickly off the retail bench and you'll be able to move that next crop out as well. Excellent point. So let's, let's get down to business here because we do want to dig deep into producing an amazing Calabricoa crop. So let's start at the beginning. When, when you receive your plants, whether you're getting you know, your young plants, whether it's unrooted cuttings or liners, what advice do you have for growers at this early stage in the game? And I know that we're, you know, recording real time as spring is breaking and, and growers have already received their Calabricoa cuttings, but, you know, as podcast, it's going to live on. So um, we'll definitely be uh, referencing this one in the winter, um, you know, when greenhouses need to, to get ready to receive those plants. But what advice do you have for, uh, for receiving and starting uh, a strong Calabricoa crop? Well, first, when you receive any really shipment of, of URCs, pop, pop them in the box, take a temperature reading, if you can, of the plants, just to make sure, one, they're not frozen or, or they're temperature damaged, that, you know, you're wasting your time sticking them, 
or they're maybe a little bit overheated and you can just pop them in the cooler for a few hours to regain that turgidity before you stress them out and start sticking them. Um, a lot of people like to like approach uh, uh, even before sticking calabacoa different ways. Uh, some people like to rehydrate them in a bath. Uh, that bath could also include something like botanicard or even rooting hormone. Um, and while that's not entirely necessary, maybe they're nice and turgent, you can go right on to sticking them. Calabacoa being a thin caliper plant, um, most commonly the, the trays are dibbled before and then it, to make sticking a little bit easier, uh, quicker if you have an automatic dippler or uh, some sort of you know, dibble that you can dibble your whole tray at once. Um, and then afterwards, you know, you've stuck your calabacoa. Uh, the biggest thing and, and where people get a lot of pitfalls is if you did create that opening uh, and dibble, you gotta close it and create great media to stem contact. Um, there's been a lot of talk of, you know, a, a small caliber plant kind of hanging in that dibble and not making good contact. Uh, you, you're just going to find uh, uneven rooting uh, throughout your tray, and uh, that could be uh, mischaracterized as other issues. So, yeah, media contact with the stem is number one once you, once you do that. And then the process of rehydrating, uh, you want to be heavy on the mist initially, uh, to, you know, first 24 hours to get everything standing back up. Uh, not falling over. You can also do some cheater methods. Maybe you add some adjuvant or something to uh, spread out and, and disable, you know, kind of break that surface tension of the water uh, across the cuticle of that leaf, increasing the rehydration uh, of that cutting. Or, um, you know, uh, but once you get it rehydrated after the first 24 hours, you come back in and sh you should be like any cutting, working off your night mist. Uh, not as rapidly maybe as a petunia, a little bit more slow and steady. Um, and, and so you can come in and, and extend those durations of the nighttime. Uh, so you can probably be off within your, you know, first five days, if you will, uh, would be ideal if you could. Uh, if it stretches into six or, or seven, then, you know, really, definitely you want to be off completely uh, at night, ideally around the five-day range. Okay. No, that that's great advice. I think that that dibble comment that you made is is very critical. How often do you see that when you when you're in a greenhouse? How often do you see a a problem with that dibble hole being too big and the cutting just sort of hanging in there? Is that something you see all the time? Um, more often than you would like to see, because it is something that's very easy to fix. Uh, but it's one of those things where if you have a new staff that you haven't trained up. Uh, that's doing your sticking. Uh, it might be something where it's an issue for your first week of sticking, right? It, it seems that crews, for whatever reason, every time we get back into that sticking mode, uh, sometimes you have to retrain slightly or remind uh, your crew proper protocols for uh, sticking cuttings, not just calabacoa. Um, but as you're, uh, as we kind of stuck the calabacoa and got it through its first 24 hours, got it off night mist. One thing I will point, I will make that. Uh, whether you have mist uh, with some feed running through, uh, feeding before you have roots, or you know, once you develop that callus tissue, uh, start feeding lightly uh, as early as possible because calabacoa, like a petunia, is, is generally a hungry plant uh, and will benefit immensely in its uniformity and speed of rooting and producing a liner uh, with that additional feed as quickly as possible. Okay. Oh, thanks for that. So can you talk a little bit about, so I would imagine early, early in the game, you also need to be thinking ahead about what configuration you're going to produce this, this Calabricoa in. So can you talk a little bit about the different configurations? I know, um, as I mentioned before, it's a very versatile crop, quartz, baskets. It's also very common in combinations. You see tons of Calabricoa combos out in the marketplace. So are there any differences in how to get um, these young plants to perform best in these different finished applications. I think that, you know, you mentioned your experience producing so many of these and in, in, in these different configurations. So I think you know where the market trends are going. So it'd be great if you could spend a little bit of extra time on combos. So um, anything you can do to, to help our listeners 
uh, understand how to how to plan ahead for the different um, ways they're going to sell these plants? Yeah, I mean, uh, you hit combos as being one of those things in particular um, that I think every grower has their own special way that they like to attack that problem. Um, a couple of ways that you can do it or that you may not have tried. Uh, calvicoa, if you're doing a multi-species combo, depending on the vigor of that calvicoa that you're putting in there, you might want to add an extra liner or two um, to that combo, uh, that, not necessarily to throw off the balance of the combo, just to make sure that the other components and the vigors of that all of a sudden don't drown and, and out-compete the calvicoa. Um, that can also be an issue right after planting, for example. Uh, you have an aggressive petunia, and it, it, you plant it, and it takes off, and it starts swallowing the calvicoa space because it does take calvicoa a little bit longer to establish to, to start to grow. Um, you also can do certain things if you know what you're. If you're producing your own liners, uh, and this is a, an advantage of producing your own liners, you can control the PGR applications, um, and dependent on the finished crop. Uh, finished pot size that you want that crop to go into. For example, if you maybe you want to be a little bit more heavier on your PGRs, you're using the same variety in uh, a liner tray that's going to eventually be in four inch or quarts or pints versus one that's going to end up being an 11 inch hanging basket. Um, so, you know, that's one of the ways you can also tackle that issue with Calvacoa because it does take a little bit uh, longer to establish in some of our other ornamental vegetative liners is there um is it important to select the right variety for the different configurations is there a difference between the i mean i know that we you know we, we've seen some caliber coas that are bred for more of a a quart application and some that are bred you know with a little bit more vigor how important is variety selection in this in this process you know, variety selection, I think, is it's not just about your color selection and your color palette, uh, having the right vigor, matching it with your right pot size and application. I mean, this goes for all breeding companies now. We all offer different lines, um, you know, whether it be a small pot production, Conga, Calvati, Aloha uh, Nani, or, for example, you can be in a more aggressive application where you're throwing in a mini famous Neo or, you know, something like a Bloomtastic. Or you know even um, uh, uh, super bells, you know, you we generally know what the vigors are of these things, but all the breeding companies uh, break it down so that you can marry up vigors pretty easily with what the final pot size application that you want. But there's always going to be that that application where you're like, I gotta have this color, even though it's either a little bit uh, smaller and more compact or it's a little bit larger. And there's where really you have your option of stepping on the gas a little bit with heavier with feed to make it larger, or you're maybe you're doing some specialty PGR applications prior to planting or during the finishing process. Okay. And then you talked a little bit about add, you know, potentially adding a cutting to a multi-species mix to, to help, you know, to help sort of balance it out. I know that when growers hear that, they're they're thinking, oh, that's that's an added cost. So do you, I mean, do you feel you can you can recoup that added cost? I mean, are the economics there that make it, you know, uh, I guess appropriate to add that cutting? Well, generally speaking, if you are adding uh, something that is less vigorous, uh, maybe in that combo you have two calvicoas. Uh, versus one between your liner, and you don't necessarily have to have it two to two on that if you're doing a duo, or you have six cuttings in your combination um, for maybe a 12 inch. Well, you're going to add three calvicoa, and you know that picopa is pretty aggressive, and that petunia is pretty aggressive. So you maybe you only add you know two of those, and oh, you have one more. You know, well, you can decide whether you need a little bit more petunia color or you need a little bit more spreading of your copa to make sure your, your whole basket is balanced. I think that's the flexibility that you have as growers to make decisions uh, based on you know, how you want your finished product to look. And I, I would encourage uh, growers not to uh, be afraid of, of adding that extra uh, calvicoa in there if you know, the ultimate result is you don't have to work as hard to finish a beautiful plant. 
Okay. I, I, I get that. That I think is, is um, probably the best way to think about it. Thank you. So now that the crop is, you know, you, you've chosen the, the correct varieties, you've, you've potted them up, you're made, you, you know, you made sure that that liner was, was growing strong. So the crop's actively growing in the greenhouse. What are some uh, best practices from your experience to ensure optimal production of Calibrecoa? So, you know, I imagine that lighting, feed, watering, all the, all the basics are important. You talked about PGRs. Um, what tips do you have for the listeners based on your experience with this crop and working with growers in your current role to, to dial in their, in their production? Well, for lighting in particular, um, based on the newer breeding, uh, a lot of the newer breeding has a, uh, a critical day length that is less than 12 hours for initiation of reproductive growth or, or flowering growth, right? So, you know, the breeding companies are doing the best to provide the tools that you don't have to put that night interruption in there. However, if you are still in certain regions of the country and you need Calabacoa um, earlier, earlier than uh, some other maybe natural season weeks, yeah, a night interruption will ensure uniformity depending uh, across the variety of genetics that you're using. Um, in addition, you know, we know that Calabacoa is a low pH plant. I mean, um, iron deficiencies are usually the number one issue in finishing a, a Calabacoa of size or a basket over a long course of duration. And this is where a grower has to know a few things about their operation and every grower's operation is unique. You need a water quality test to know, okay, what what water do I have? And then what fertilizer should I be using to achieve a low pH environment for Calvacoa production throughout? And, and they're not just doing uh, a Calvacoa production. The same grower could also be doing high pH products like geraniums. So you have to figure out universally what's going to work best for you. Um, at the same time, uh, for example, say you have a high uh, pH water um, with a high alkalinity in it. So you're going to need a little bit more of a 2010-20 with acid injection to bring that high alkalinity water down to a, maybe a lower pH water because you've decided, hey, I'm going to use a pretty neutral media. Um, there are many ways to skin a cat and many ways to grow a plant. Uh, a grower might decide in their operation, oh, I have a little bit. I'm going to order more pansy media, low pH media, and I'm going to make the active effort to plant all my calabacoa in low pH media. Um, that way I know that I have that little extra buffer because, you know, I'm not going to switch out and have a, a, a 2010-20 or a low pH feed. I'm just going to go rock steady with maybe just a 17-5-17, a calcium nitrate feed. So I'm going to start at a lower pH. I know my pH is going to creep up over time, but I'm going to monitor that through uh, some media tests, um, whether they be in-house or out-house, I would encourage people that are doing Calabacoa for the first time to monitor um, their pH of their media as well as their EC uh, to make sure that they're maintaining that low pH throughout the long crop cycle. Uh, and to start a monitoring program, you might want to do some in-house tests where it be a saturated paste or a two-by-one method. And then at the same time, take that same sample or, or actually the sample that you generated at the same time that you ran your in-house sample and send it out to a lab. Just get an idea of, okay, what is my in-house testing telling me versus what, you know, the, the laboratory testing is telling me. And this is not something that you have to continue um, every week. Maybe you decide that I'm just going to monitor the trends every other week or you do a water test every year. So you know what your water coming in is. You've been successful for many years growing a low pH media with or your same standard fertilizer practice. But then maybe it's not necessary that you monitor your every crop of Calabacoa every time. But I would encourage you to generate your own data, uh, at least for the first year, to see, okay, how, how well do I have to monitor this crop? Um, because once you get to a situation where you're deficient because your pH has creeped up on you, then with this crop, you have to then turn that ship around. And it's, you know, it takes longer to turn a ship around than just to keep it on course. 
Okay. You know, it's funny. I, I've, I, we heard a very similar comments when, um, in the last episode talking about garden mum, uh, production in the early stages, but I do think that monitoring is, you know, if there's a mantra that's going to come out of these, um, crop, uh, episodes, it's going to be monitoring, keeping a very close eye on the data and, um, not just, planting it and walking away. And then you also made the comment about how important it is to, to do that water quality test to make sure that you have the correct pH specific to your caliber COA crop. So I think that those are um, excellent take-home notes for Bill, the listeners. Yeah. Bill, you know, a grower, they're, they're going to have um, some minor hiccups occasionally throughout the growing season. Um, the, uh, not a week goes by that I don't get a call about a grower. Oh, my pH has creeped up to seven. What do I do now? So to that, I can also encourage the listeners have a plan uh, to lower your pH of your media rapidly. So you have that on your shelf because uh, you can't assume in this day and age of, of way products flow into our growers that our suppliers of our chemicals and, and our products are going to have that sitting on the shelf to overnight to you immediately. Okay. Um, I think we'll encourage a grower to not only have a way to drive their media down in pH, but also have a way to bring their media pH up for their other crops and have that on hand for the spring season. Because, you know, generally a, a lot of nutritional issues can be attributed to the improper pH, not necessarily, oh, I didn't feed enough. Okay. That's really, really good advice. So um, you talk about getting those calls in during, during the season and that you're getting them almost every week. So what are the, some of the horror stories or uh, biggest challenges? Um, you mentioned pH. Are there others that you've seen growers face um, specific to Caliber Co? I know that you've You've said before that this is a crop that, that requires attention all the way up until the day it's shipped. So what, what have you seen go wrong? Uh, the worst horror case is you have a huge hanging basket and you need to ship all these very nice hanging baskets. Um, and you've made, so you're, you're at the one yard line, if you will, and you're taking it in to, to score a touchdown. And all of a sudden you get a cloudy day and the only way to water is overhead. Well, the, you know, and to add insult to injury, you also sleeve everything or you wrap your carts. Um, that's where you have to tell your growers and communicate, Hey, we, we can't water overhead. You know, we can move things, we can pull some hoses, we can get underneath this foliage, but, uh, like, a growing petunias outside and getting a heavy rain on them or heavy rain on a mum crop before you pick it up and wrap it. You're just asking for botrytis to come in there and wipe out your, your beautiful plant. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, also when in a basket or a large, you know, could be flats even, uh, you got a little aggressive and let them dry down using the media moisture scale, maybe past a two, right? So you, you, you had something that was in full bloom, all of a sudden dry down real hard. And uh, then you're just going to have to be a little cautious and you might have to switch to another crop for shipping. And, and those are really the, the worst horror stories that I've seen. I mean, usually a, a nutritional deficiency and a pH one doesn't necessarily come into you and it's a horror story surprise. That one's kind of a steady, slow creep on you um, that you have to fix and write. But those ones where all of a sudden you, you can't ship a product, those are the real horror stories. Absolutely. I think that your, your analogy of getting, you know, right up to the goal line and then at that point you, you just threw an interception. Um, yeah. And uh, you did mention the uh, the water um, the water chart, and we have uh, done episodes on that. So I will put those links in the show notes so that folks, um, if you don't understand what what James meant by drying down below a two, I encourage you to listen to the language of watering episode. Um, again, I'll put that in the show notes, and that'll uh, that'll be very clear um, once you've listened. So. How about pests and diseases during production? Are there any uh, any specifics that that growers need to watch out for? I mean, growers are aware that Calvico uh, is attractive to, to most pests, like most of our crops. But in particular, it seems to be uh, you, you always will find aphids eventually somewhere on your Calvicoa. Um, and the, I guess to go off a horror story, a horror story would be you have these very uh, uh, 
Calvacoa is hanging up in, in the top of your greenhouse. They got real big. You take them down and they're covered with casings. Worse yet, sooty mold uh, because the population is so high. So I encourage growers to kind of have a, a preventative aphid plan in place because you know that it's going to pop up eventually. Um, maybe not as aggressive early season when the pressure isn't uh, around outside your greenhouse for the aphids to travel in. Um, but maybe still some some regular sprays or some biological releases. Actually, aphid control, uh, as far as a bio biological control, is out there and is is effective. Uh, but again, people, you know, as we move to a post neonic world, uh, you know, you're going to have to get a, a, an aphid plan in place, and it's a lot easier to prevent them than it is to really um, um, go back and, and try and eradicate them. Uh, thrips are also an issue. Um, again, you know, that's pretty standard with most of our flower ornamental crops. Um, we have seen some incidences more and more of, of some powdery mildew, uh, which seems to be uh, a varying resistance across breeding lines and series. Um, some are more resistant than others. Some colors are more uh, susceptible than others in the same series. Uh, so that has definitely uh, occurred um, pretty widespread now across the U.S. and also to our friends north in Canada. Okay, so some of the some of the common ones, and then certainly with the with the thrips, some uh, and aphids. I think that uh, there's definitely protocols that you can put in place, like you said, having a preventative uh, program for aphids is is critical. Um, I. Glad you mentioned biocontrols. I think that a lot of growers are exploring those options, and it's good to know that um, that there are biocontrols that that could be out there to work on on your aphid situation. Um, as growers, uh, so now we're we're kind of through through the production. Growers are thinking about shipping these caliber coa to market. Um, do you have any uh, any tips for finishing the crop and and sending it out? Um. Well, you know, finishing out, if you can achieve maybe a higher night temperature, you might get larger blooms. Um, but if you, you know, you can also then work down and say, oh, you've achieved, you know, a nice finished crop, but you want to sell it over a course of a couple of weeks. Um, actually, if you start to cool down Calabacoa, it will hold and become very tough. Um, so it can even withstand maybe some of your customers taking Calabacoa and purchasing them and putting them outside maybe a little bit earlier than uh, you would have liked to yourself. Um, so that's something that we can do. We can start working down and cooling down our Calabacoa uh, for, for shipping. Um, yeah, mainly some people like to apply maybe a late PGR to hold. Um, and generally, we don't see uh, incidences of like, well, we have a lot of shower, shatter or a lot of um, bloom loss with shipping calabacoa. Um, there usually there's so many blooms of calabacoa that you know one or two come off or get damaged, then we're fine. And, and generally the customers don't even notice. Uh, it, you know you might have to, if you grow some extra large calabacoa um, or you have some wonderful combos where it's spilling over, you might want to consider some sleeves or even um, for, I know that very regularly I would use a, uh, we had a very large combination that was 14 inches and so, or, or larger, you know, some of those high dollar items, you might want to put a breathable sleeve so that Calabacoa that's spilling over uh, doesn't get damaged next to another pot, whether it be on the truck or on the cart. Okay, that's good. Cause I was going to ask you any specifics about um, shipping combos or multi-species Calabacoa mixes. So I do, and I, I've seen plenty of them go out with the breathable sleeve. And I do think that, especially if you're going to, you know, command a premium price for those at retail, um, trying to keep, keep those as, you know, al allowing them to spill out, but, but keeping that a uh, little bit more controlled and shipping makes a ton of sense. So when the crop gets to the retail uh, bench, are there any kind of nuances for maintaining them as a as a good saleable plant? I know that no nobody likes shrink from production all the way through the retail, but how can garden centers avoid any plant loss on the bench or keep their calabacoa looking um, looking as good as they can until they're sold? Well, ideally, 
at this point, when you're, I mentioned for growers to monitor pH, I, I don't really think it's a high priority for a retailer or a garden center to do that. Uh, nor should the product be really sitting on their shelves that long for it to have that drift, right? Uh, but I would encourage them to continue to feed uh, in some way if they can in the garden center. Um, nothing, nothing ridiculous. It's something that, you know, there's a little bit more nutrition coming in so they continue, whether they sit there for, for two days or they sit there for 24 hours or, you know, they sit there for five days because you had a, a bad stretch of weather. Um, that way they can maintain and continue to push new growth and new blooms. So, you know, when the weather does break, you know, you're not sitting there with something that um, is a little bit starved uh, for attention or develops a sort of uh, hunger that you have to remedy. Um, so I would encourage people to in garden centers to, to feed if they can, uh, you know, in general, uh, plant uh, a care, you know, if it's a cloudy day, maybe hold back on the water, okay, and then get in there early or, you know, don't be afraid to take the water breaker off the end of the hose and, and just go underneath the foliage if you have to get something, um, you know, but that's that's basic plant care. Um, it's, it's often when we try and take shortcuts that we create more problems for us that are longer to it take a, a longer time to solve and, and then affects us in the bottom line. No, I think that that's good advice. And, you know, we, we do know that at, you know, garden centers in the spring, a lot of time you have a seasonal staff or a lot of new team members. So I think that some of those basics are important to, um, to go over with your staff, you know, certainly holding back watering on cloudy days. I think everyone's sort of learned that lesson, but, you know, it's a very good reminder, um, watering under the, the foliage. Um, these are, these are pretty easy yeah. tips and tricks to go over with a new, a, you know, a new, a new team, but I think it's certainly valuable because you want these plants to look as good as they can for as long as they can. So. I guess I, I one point I would mention too, if you get some, some air movement around, um, especially where you hang your calvicoa, because some of them might be a very dense type of plant. Uh, if you can get some air movement through some of the canopy and moving around, uh, that would be ideal for longevity as well. You know, I'm not talking a vortex here, but something to where it's not just stagnant. Okay, yeah, and maybe give them some space up in the up, up on your basket lines. So you've shared a ton of great information about producing this crop. Um, you know, you, you got very specific about some of the strategies um, that you've used in the past, some of the some of the advice that you give to your your customers now. So let's have a little bit of fun and talk some varieties. Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons Calibrecoa are so uh, exciting for, you know, gardeners is because you have different, you know, vibrant colors. You have all of these novelties. So what are your some of your favorites for for these different uses and, and why? Well, I had the, for my role with Fall Floor Plant and Selecta, I actually had the pleasure of uh, growing many breeding companies, Calabricoa. And I don't like to tell uh, plants that I have favorites, um, but we all do. And um, I grew a, a ton of the mini famous line before it was broken into Unos and Neos. Um, I always did enjoy uh, uh, the dark color of Vampire um, at the same time. Aloha pineapple is unmistakable and uh, was always a kind of good yellow red throat that I liked. Um, lemon slice, you still can't really match that, that type of, of color, uh, whether, but it can still be some vigorous off of the proven winter line. Um, so there's a lot of great Calabricoa out there. And, you know, the breeding companies, we continue to bring you new and improved uh, Calabricoa. So I think everybody does a pretty good job. And, and the ones that do a better job than others, um, you know, they're continuously to bring out new ones as well. So uh, really, um, I those were my call outs, I would say. And it awesome. doesn't mean that the other ones aren't just as good or, or just as exciting, but those were those were my personal ones. Okay, and I think while I guess um, to kind of throw a curveball at you while we're talking varieties, is there are there any differences to growing the doubles than there are to growing the 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 regular calibrico. I know you deal a lot with the mini famous, the the doubles, neos and unos. What are there? Is there anything specific growers need to know about producing a, a nice crop of doubles? Uh, 
No, the the only thing I would say is that it's not um, entirely different from from uh, just about the flower form. Um, the doubles tend to be uh, a part of the neo line, although we do have some some of our compact now eye color doubles in the uno line, um, being pinktastic and plumptastic, and it, it seems to be at least with the doubles, um, they are uh, they do enjoy uh, a little bit more of a warmer. Uh, finish at night to uh, really get that enhanced flower, um, you know, is uh, ready for retail. But if you can finish them warm and then cool them down a little bit, you will get an exciting pop in that that double color. So it's always a balance. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's something particular different that you have to do. You just have to recognize that you know if you're producing a double out of the neo line, it, it will be maybe a little bit more aggressive than uh, some of the others. Uh, that you have produced in the past, maybe if you're on a more compact line like a cabaret. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, so, what have we missed? Uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here in a minute. But are there any other best practices related to getting uh, your caliber coa started and finished and out the door that that you want to cover before we before we wrap up here? I, I guess one thing I, I did kind of gloss over uh, a little bit that I didn't specifically call out is uh, root health. Um, you know, we talked about proper pH for the media and we talked about media moisture management. Um, but, you know, don't be afraid to pop up and look at your white healthy roots, hopefully. Um, but, you know, pythium is an issue uh, that can prop, uh, crop up in uh, calvicoa. So, you know, it, it's important that if you start to see a, a problem that you attribute to a nutritional problem, that you're at least checking the roots to make sure that they're healthy so that you can say that is a nutritional problem versus something like pythium or absolutely worst case, uh, flaviopsis. Okay. Yeah, great, great advice to, to wrap up here. Um, pop the plants out of the, out of the pots, look at the roots and really, um, you know, that, that visual is going to go a long way to, uh, to keeping you on track. So, Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate your willingness to take a deep dive into Calibrecoa on this episode of STEM. And as we discussed, this is a huge retail crop and the market has boomed. Um, you mentioned that you don't you don't really see it, it dropping off, especially with the, the huge consumer interest. And as new genetics come to market, I think the uses for the crop are going to continue to expand. So having these solid production plans in place are going to become more and more critical for growers of all sizes. So you've definitely helped our listeners get off to a great start with Calibrecoa. So um, I know that you uh, you travel quite a bit. You're actually going to hop on a plane here shortly and go off to Europe to look at um, new crops. But So I know that uh, you are definitely running around a lot. But how can folks get in touch with you with questions? And are there any resources you want to share to support any of the best practices we went over today? Well, I think um, you can always contact me at, at jdukas at ballhort.com uh, through email. Sometimes I am a little bit more responsive than others, depending on the season, uh, since I am popping around in and out of airplanes a lot. And uh, also, it's probably not the best to be responding to an email while you're driving, um, <laughs> at least not in today's world. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I would encourage people to be familiar with medium moisture uh, scale. Um, that way they can kind of, you know, uh, enhance their growing technique or ability or at le- the very um, least be able to train new employees in a way that it's not an arbitrary communication. Uh, I think that's really for Calvacoa. Medium moisture management is another thing that we, we touched on. But yeah, that was a resource that I would really, um, from Dr. Healy, that I would really uh, uh, encourage people to seek out. As far as Calvacoa production, uh, a lot of good uh, resources from your local land grant universities, uh, whether it be NC State, Michigan State, uh, Cornell, they all have great um, Calvacoa uh, growing. Uh, uh, techniques or, and cookbooks, playbooks, whatever you want to call them, um, tech sheets. Uh, also, all, all the breeders, we spend a lot of time uh, doing some grower facts and cultural sheets. Uh, and, and I know a lot of them are available now through the web. Um, and if you aren't technologically savvy, um, 
all the catalogs themselves have uh, uh, some some general cultural information, um, and I'm sure that everybody, uh, your local sales rep, will also help you uh, hunt down this information. Awesome, and I will. Um, you mentioned a few of the universities. I'll 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 do a little bit of digging and find some of those text sheets. Um, I'll put links to some of the catalogs in the show notes. Uh, you did give a shout out to Dr. Healy's Media Moisture Scales, which again, I'll put that link because um, we have done STEM episodes on uh, training your staff and training your team on Media Moisture. And again, I'll put a link to your email address in the show notes uh, if anybody wants to reach out. So again, thank you so much, James. There's been tons of useful information. And to the STEM listeners, you probably noticed that the last episode, which was Dr. Healy on Mom Production. In this one, we're deep dives into specific crops, and we're going to continue that path next time with another plant that's seen tremendous growth lately, which is lavender. So stay tuned. So again, thank you so much for all your time, James, and uh, we look forward to talking to you in the future about other crops. Thanks, Bill. Have a nice day. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros. And special thanks for helping us surpass 9,000 downloads. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and give it a good rating on your podcast player, or better yet, write a quick review and share it with your coworkers and peers. This will help expose more potential listeners to STEM. We really appreciate the support. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. That's B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And now you can follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. Let's end this episode with a quote about being resilient from author Jose Harris. There comes a time in your life when you walk away from all the drama and people who create it. You surround yourself with people who make you laugh. Forget the bad and focus on the good. Love the people who treat you right and pray for the ones who do not. Life is too short to be anything but happy. Falling down is a part of life. Getting back up is living.